Welcome to Legacy Women's Podcast, where we seek to encourage women in their relationship with God and one another through monthly conversations with the women of Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Hello, everyone. For this episode, we will hear from five women who shared at our Legacy Group meetings this spring. For these meetings, we gathered together at the church to discuss various articles and chapters in small groups, and we were also able to hear from different ladies on the topic we were studying that week. I wanted to share their testimonies here for those who were unable to attend, or maybe you missed one of the sessions, or you'd just like to hear them again. First, you'll hear from Christina Jones. She'll share about Bible reading. Next, I share on the topic of biblical womanhood. Third, you'll hear Amy Wendell talk about battling anxiety. And last, you'll hear from Rachel Wiley and Sherry Kittrell on the topic of mentoring. Enjoy. So, on January 6, 2015, my husband Josh and I sat in a stunned, that is, in a cold white room decorated with photos of mothers and their newborn babies while our midwife explained to us that our unborn daughter most likely had a severe chromosomal defect with a two-thirds chance of fatality. When she left the room, I cried. When we got to the car in the parking lot, I cried. When we got home and sat down on the couch, I cried. And then Joshua opened the Bible. Let me back up for a moment. Since 2009, I have had varying degrees of infertility, usually summed up as PCOS. We tried for nearly two full years to have our firstborn son, Brennan. To my regret, those years were full of tears against God, not with him. The grief wasn't over when he was born, either. I was hit with severe but undiagnosed postpartum depression. Brennan had severe but undiagnosed uh, reflux and colic. And Joshua was an overwhelmed dad who dealt with it all by more or less trying to pretend that it was really not that bad. As I gradually pulled out of my depression and Brennan outgrew his colic, things seemed to be getting better on the outside, but inside our marriage, parenting, and spiritual health were still very strained. Then in 2014, we did something perfectly normal at a time like this. We decided to read the Bible in three months. But that's not normal. Um, Seriously, though, I cannot explain to you why on earth we thought this was a good idea except by a move of the Holy Spirit and a wise, all-knowing Heavenly Father. In fact, we loved it so much that we turned around and read the Bible again in three months. And then we we loved that so much that we did it again and burned out and went back to a normal Bible reading plan. (laughs) I told people at the time what a delight it was to read the Bible as a whole instead of in small, dragged-out snippets. For the first time in my life, I was seeing how God's story connected all throughout Scripture. I was making connections from all sorts of places that I had never seen before, and it filled me with fresh spiritual joy and excitement for Christ. But God had even bigger plans than that. When Joshua opened the Bible that night in 2015, he set the course for how we were going to suffer. I believe he read from Job chapter 1, 20 and 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So remember that I told you the first years of our marriage were very strained. Only a few weeks after that devastating anatomy ultrasound, 
I can still clearly remember laying on another ultrasound table while a cardiologist looks, looked for serious heart defects. Joshua and I were still in deep shock and grief. And yet the cardiologist scanned our faces and said, you guys are gonna be okay. I can tell you have a good marriage. And he wasn't wrong. Many marriages are destroyed by trials like ours. Many marriages are destroyed by far less. And we weren't different because we were fundamentally better, less sinful people. We were different for two reasons. One, we had a healthy church community that wrapped us up in love, prayer, and lots of free food. And two, we had a fresh and comprehensive repository of God's words stored up in our hearts and our minds. I thought the Bible twice in six months was crazy. God thought it was exactly what the great physician ordered. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, says Psalm 119.11. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, according to Matthew 4.4. 4. I am here to give you this testimony because since 2015, I have not shut up about how vital scripture is to our lives. Especially as women, we are easily overwhelmed with life's busyness and trials. Um, we're, too often we're often too busy to get a shower, let alone luxuriate over an open Bible and a warm cup of coffee. But I'm here to tell you that it's okay for your coffee to be cold or absent and for your hair to be stinky dirty if you chose 10 minutes here or there to feed on the word of God instead. As John 4 verses 13 and 14 say, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's a well-known fact that kids ask a lot of questions when they're a certain age. Um, and I was reminded of this a few weeks ago. We went um, to my family's home in West Virginia. It's seven hours away. And we took my kids, who are nine, seven, and four, and my four-year-old nephew. And there were a lot of questions. Um, my my, my um, nephew, Miles, is definitely in this age. And he, at one point, he goes, Uncle Kevin. Yes, Miles what are those black things over there on the hill? And he's like, oh, th those, are the those are the shadows from the clouds, Miles, where the sun's coming through. Um, and I just thought, wow, that's very observant. But there were tons of questions like that, and we were definitely asked if we were there yet 200 times. It's a cliche for a reason. Um, but sometimes I've felt like the kid with all the questions when it comes to this topic of biblical womanhood. Here are just a few of, of many of the ones I've asked over the years. Why did God make women? How should the fact that I'm a woman and not a man affect my daily life? Or should it? What will I tell my daughters about what it means to be a woman? How does my career relate to biblical womanhood? What does it mean to be busy at home? Are these questions you've ever pondered? If so, where do you find the answers? 
I'm, um, I'm just really thankful that over the years I've been taught well from Scripture my whole life, and that's just a gift from God. And so between the preaching from pastors, women's meetings and events, books, and godly examples, I'm thankful that God has put me in places where I've been helped to answer these questions biblically. But after hearing Susan's teaching, the one you guys listened to, um, I was freshly inspired to study this topic and find answers to some of my nagging questions. And so what followed was two years of diving into scripture to gain a better understanding. And when I thought about biblical womanhood at this time, I, I kind of thought of it as a puzzle picture. And the pieces are all the different character traits that the Bible talks about for women or the callings they emphasize or just the examples of women in scripture, the good ones and the bad ones. And I felt like I had a lot of pieces of the puzzle, but I wasn't always sure how they fit together. And I wasn't always sure, like, what's the big picture that's, that's being displayed here. So this study helped me to have a better understanding of the pieces of biblical womanhood and how they fit together in my life and what they were portraying. So this two-year study was, was fun. It was a labor, uh, but the Lord really blessed me in it. And so I want to share a few takeaways from this time of study. And my goal is not to answer all your questions. Um, and it's also not to convince you to do a two-year study, but my goal is to convince you to come to God's Word with your questions and know that the answers you will find there are good. So I have four takeaways from this time. And the first one was just, recognizing my need for humility. Um, anytime we want to honor God and apply his word, we're going to have three enemies. Um, they are the world, the flesh, and the devil. It doesn't matter what the topic is. Um, these are going to be our enemies. And it's certainly true regarding this topic of biblical womanhood. So first, I was just aware that in my sinful flesh, I don't always like what God's word has to say to me about being a woman. And, and we all just come to this topic with baggage, our experience, our personality, life circumstances, and so much more affect how we think about it. And, and this really shouldn't come as a surprise. When God tells Eve about the consequences of the fall, part of what he tells her is your desire will be against your husband and he will rule over you. And, and this means that one fundamental consequence of our sin is that both men and women will push against and distort God's plan for them. So I needed God's grace to replace my heart of stone and give me a soft heart of humility toward him and his word. My second enemy is Satan. Um, the heart of biblical womanhood, as Susan taught us, is all about glorifying God and telling his story of redemption. So, of course, Satan hates it. And as the father of lies who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, he loves to lie to us about this fundamental issue of gender. And as he did with Eve in the garden, I think he still loves to whisper, did God really say? And follow that up with insinuations that God isn't good. What he has for us isn't good. And he wants to sow seeds of distrust in our hearts. Um, interestingly, my main temptation at this time doesn't seem to be actual rejection of the word or heresy. Um, instead, it's happily saying something is true while not doing it. Um, so I think Satan's happy for me to say that I think submission is biblical as long as I don't actually submit to my husband or think that it's a good thing. Um, so I was, as I studied, I was just aware that I needed to fight the lies of Satan and that he wanted to undermine both my understanding of God's word and my application of it. And my final enemy is the world. 
we all know that there are few issues where there's more open rebellion against God than the issue of gender right now. And we can't exist in this world and be unaffected by that. So as I studied, I needed a mind that was renewed by the Holy Spirit to think biblically instead of culturally. Um, Obviously, this just humbled me um, and made me aware that I needed God to work in my life so that I would understand and submit to his word. And, and thankfully, that's exactly what God loves to do. He promises to give grace to the humble, as we heard on Sunday. And he also promises to generously give wisdom to anyone who asks. So I just encourage you to um, come to God's word with that heart posture and expect him to meet you. Um, my second takeaway was just I, it, this time of study built my confidence in and my love for God's word. Um, just like us, many people around us are trying to answer the questions of life, the big questions. What's our purpose? And, and especially questions about gender. Um, where are they going to find these answers? Often they're going to themselves. They're going to their feelings or their experiences or their lusts. And unfortunately, all of this looking within never really really leads to the right answers and often leads to sorrow. But as we talked about last time we met, we're just so privileged that we have God's word and that it's true and it's good and reliable. Um, And so I was also reading through the Bible during this time of study. And so spending this much time in scripture really built my confidence that it's breathed out by God and profitable. Now that said, That doesn't mean there aren't challenging or even confusing parts. I used commentaries and books to help me understand. And there were some verses where my initial goal was just to be able to read it and not be offended. Um, You may know what I'm talking about. But my ultimate goal really was to understand and love and apply the passage to my life. And while I'm not an expert at all, God did help me in this goal. And so I just want to encourage you that God loves to illuminate his word to us through his spirit and to ask for his help with difficult and confusing things. And, um, and so as I, I read, I just grew in my appreciation of the beauty of scripture and especially the big story it's telling, which brings me to my third point. And that's how womanhood relates to the gospel. Womanhood doesn't stand on its own in the Bible. It's part of the whole, as Susan taught us. And so this relates to the topic of biblical theology. Biblical theology is how the whole Bible fits together and how it tells the grand story of redemption and reveals who God is. What I was doing in this study is systematic theology. That's kind of trying to understand what does the whole Bible teach us about a specific topic. In this case, it was what does the whole Bible have to say to women? Um, But most exciting to me was seeing how womanhood relates to the whole and how it relates to God's plan of redemption. And so I grew in my appreciation that womanhood isn't just a sidebar to that storyline, but that women were created to glorify God by both experiencing and helping to tell the bigger story of who he is and what he's doing. Um, John Piper made this claim in a sermon he gave at a women's conference. He said, The ultimate meaning of true womanhood is this. It is a distinctive calling of God to display the glory of his son in ways that would not be displayed if there were no womanhood. If there were only generic persons and not male and female, the glory of Christ would be diminished in the world. I'm going to read it again. The ultimate meaning of true womanhood is this. It is a distinctive calling of God to display the glory of his son in ways that would not be displayed if there were no womanhood. 
if there were only generic persons and not male and female, the glory of Christ would be diminished in the world. And this quote captured my imagination ever since I read it. And it led me to ask this question as I studied. How does a woman applying this passage highlight the glory of Christ? Or to put it another way, how does this character trait I'm seeing, this calling, this role, this godly woman's example, how does this image God? Or how does it tell his story of redemption? And for me, this was a truly transformational way to look at this topic. All too often, I can approach womanhood as a pragmatic issue, an issue of division of labor and roles. Women drew the short straw, so we get to bear the children and submit. Um, but when I look at motherhood, submission, life-giving, being helper, singleness, purity, kindness, self-control, good works, wisdom, fearing God, anything Scripture speaks to women about, when I look at them through this lens of glorifying Christ, it really changes everything. Um, and I think the best way to explain this is through an example. Uh, one of the most encouraging ways I saw this relates to the topic of home. Uh, one of the common themes and emphases you'll see it for Scripture is in, for women in Scripture is the home. And of course, this has created many questions and plenty of controversy, but you do see this emphasis when you read. And if you look at this whole idea of home in terms of glorifying Christ and God's plan of redemption, we see that home is central throughout Scripture. It's a big theme in Scripture. And so whenever we read about the promised land, Jerusalem, Zion, and heaven, we should be thinking about a home place. Um, that's what we should be reading when we, thinking when we read promises like this in 2 Samuel 7.10. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. God's redemptive plan, the whole thing will be consummated when Jesus weds his bride, the church, and brings them to his home to dwell with him as their God. Um, like it says in Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So no wonder we have such a deep-seated longing for home. We all desire a place of belonging and security and love, and that's because God made us for that. Jesus suffered and died so that we'll get to experience this as a reality in our eternal home. And so God created our homes to be a foretaste of that ultimate home with them, with him, and he designed them to be vital and life-shaping, the building block of family and church and community, and he's given a woman towards they're a calling towards their home. He tells us to be keepers, managers, builders, and workers at home. So with this in mind, a central priority and effect of, of our home working and our homemaking is making the gospel tangible. When something is tangible, it's felt and experienced and touched and observed. And by God's grace, our homework can build a welcoming location for gospel ministry, and our spirit-filled lives can create an atmosphere of Christ-like love for the people in it. And this just makes me think of Marianne Jacoby. If you've ever been in her home, you've experienced this. Um, she loves the Lord. She, she just enjoys being with him in her spirit-filled life. And it just goes into love for you, and you feel that when you're in her home. Um, and here are a few more ways we can make the gospel tangible in our homes. Prayers, kind words, and wise counsel give biblical encouragement to those who live there or visit. The beauty and creativity we display in our home reflects the character of God. Our graciousness and generosity in and through our homes demonstrate the heart of Christ. As we faithfully tend to the needs of our family, they experience the care and faithfulness of God. 
the meals that are served there nourish bodies, but they also promote the filling of souls through fellowship and the welcoming of both friends and strangers from different walks of life and cultures is a picture of gospel unity. And all of this just points to our Savior and the home he's preparing for us. That home is going to be perfect and beautiful, but that's going to pale when we see him, the one who is our true home. And so what a privilege to point people to him as they're in our home. So that's just one example of, of one kind of area that you see um, that, that points, that shows us how we can point to the gospel. There are so many other ways I saw this. And so I just challenge you to think about the big picture storyline and glorifying Christ as you consider what scripture says to women. And the final thing I um, had as a takeaway is that God's word um, provides a strong foundation for our lives. Jesus said this in Luke 7, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. When we build our lives on the, the words of God, not just hearing them but doing them, we'll find stability and strength. Proverbs 31 describes this in a woman's life this way. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Godly women are not weak or dainty or frightened. They're strong and dignified because their lives are built upon the rock of Christ. The floods and storms of life will come, but they can laugh at the time to come because they trust God. And I'd like to illustrate this by sharing how I recently observed this playing out in the life of my grandmother. Um, I interviewed her for the podcast, so some of you have heard her share. Um, I grew up near her. She went to our church. She involved us in her life growing up, so I've observed her for a long time. Um, but she's someone whose life is built upon the rock as she's listened to Christ's words and obeyed them. In each season, she sought to glorify God with whatever, whatever circumstances he's given her. Um, just a little background, she had a very difficult childhood. Her mom died a few days after she gave birth to her and her twin sister. Her dad remarried a few years later, and her stepmom was not nice to her. Um, she doesn't know why. She's like, she didn't like me. Um, and her dad, it was during the Depression, so he was gone often trying to get work. They were very poor. So she just had a hard childhood. But she would say she always knew about God, and he sustained her. She became a Christian early in life, went to nursing school, worked and lived as a single woman, then married my grandfather, put him through dental school, and then they had five kids in seven years. Um, she raised her kids in the Lord and was a godly and loving wife for 67 years. She was also just an amazing homemaker, hosted hundreds of people in her home, active in the community, and, of course, was active in church, taught Sunday school for decades, and served in many capacities. Um, but she's just a glowing, joyful example of a godly woman serving Christ with all she has and is. Um, and her, but her life is really different now. She's 94. She's a widow. She has limited mobility, and the past year has been the most isolated of her life and um, because of COVID. And there have been several really painful family tragedies, too, in the last couple of years. 
um, but her life is built upon the rock. So um, she no longer has the calling she had before. She's not a wife. Her homemaking is limited. She can't serve the church physically. But when I talked to her over Easter a few weeks ago, I was so aware that she still embodies what it means to be a life giver and helper, like we learned about in our teaching. Um, a few examples. She told me she prayed about it, and she's not going to drive anymore. Um, she hasn't driven in the past year. Um, she thinks she still can. Um, but she doesn't want to hurt anyone, and she also doesn't want to fall trying to get around by herself. And she's doing that because she wants to be selfless, and she's thinking about the people who would have to take care of her if she hurt herself. Um, and she's still a helper, even isolated from others. Every single time I talk to her, every time, she tells me she prays for me by name every day. And my children and my husband and my aunts and uncles and cousins and second cousins, 50 people every day by name. And, and I know she doesn't. She's done it for years. Um, she's still listening to Christ's word. When I was there over Easter, she's like, oh, I, I get up on Sunday mornings and I listen to this radio Bible teaching program. She's been listening to it for years. She takes notes. You can't read her handwriting. She's like, it's not for anyone. It's just for me. She, but she just told me she was so excited. She's like, it's just so wonderful that there's so much to learn about the Lord. And I, that just so encouraged me. I can't believe at 94 you're still taking notes listening to sermons. Um, and, of course, because of this, she's well-equipped to speak life-giving words of encouragement to others. Um, at age 94, she's a compelling example of a godly woman. She's looking to Christ. Her life is submitted to him, and she really does exude joy and thankfulness and contentment in this season. So I want to be like her. I want to be a life giver and helper who hopes in Christ and laughs at the time to come. So to wrap this up, what about my puzzle analogy? I said at the beginning I wasn't sure what the picture was supposed to be. What is this godly woman? And I, I just, as I studied, I, I just realized it's, it's each Christian woman. As each of us, as we press the words of Scripture into our lives, we become godly women. We become a picture of a Christ-following woman. And, and we do this by looking to Christ. The reference picture, you know, on the box, the one you, like, look to to see what you're building, um, that's Christ himself. And as we look to him and as we seek to glorify him with our lives, we become the Christ-exalting women he created us to be. As it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Hello, my name is Amy Wendell, and I have the privilege to stand before you today and testify to how the Lord renewed my mind during a period in my life in which I was under a dark cloud of anxiety and fear. Now, before I share this testimony, please know I have not conquered anxiety. No, in fact, I still struggle frequently. You can ask my husband and friends. It is an ongoing battle for me, but the Lord used some difficult trials to better arm me for battle against anxious thoughts and to show me even more his love and faithfulness to me despite my struggles. Anxiety really began to have a grip on my heart and mind back in my sophomore year of college, about 15 years ago. I started having a lot of what-if thoughts. For example, what if Ben, my boyfriend at the time and now husband, gets in a car accident when he drives home from work? It became normal to live with distressing feelings 
until I knew he made it home safely. I didn't know it at the time, but my anxieties and fears had a common theme. Fear of losing a loved one or fear of something happening to myself. These anxious thoughts and its accompanying theme of fear of loss carried over into marriage, parenting, and day-to-day life. I was anxious to be alone, anxious to leave my kids, anxious every time I put my babies in their cribs at night, anxious to fly, or anxious if I was sick. I ultimately would avoid any situations that made me feel anxious. And let me just add that during this time, I fueled the fire of anxiety and fear by filling my mind with news. And I mean scrolling through news apps and watching cable news that only fed my anxiety. I am certainly not against news. In fact, I love my daily news podcast I listen to each day. But at the time, I was letting news inform my mind rather than God's word. And I was not being wise to guard my heart and mind as the word says to do. Fast forward to 2016, one particular event that affected me greatly was the death of my grandmother. I sat by my grandmother's bedside at the hospital and saw her pass away. The loss of my grandmother was devastating to me, and one of my fears, what if I lost my loved one, came true. I didn't know how to process my grief and fear. Unfortunately, what followed the weeks and months after her death was increased anxiety, as well as frequent panic attacks. I felt paralyzed by fear because I was never sure when a panic attack would come. Thankfully, with the help of doctor's visits and the support of friends and family, they did subside. I thought at the time that I was good. I mean, yes, I had recovered physically from the effects of anxiety, but no, I hadn't truly dealt with the root of my anxious thoughts. At the time, I was not aware of how I had tolerated the sin of not trusting the Lord for the past several years of my life. I was not aware that I was trying to control my life rather than give the Lord control. But the Lord in his kindness and mercy would go on to use another hard trial to expose these things and bring me to a place of repentance and renewal of my mind. In 2017, about a year after the loss of my grandmother, I gave birth to my daughter, Willa. Despite all the joy of welcoming this sweet baby girl into our home and life, a dark cloud of postpartum depression and anxiety had descended upon my mind. I felt tormented by anxious what-if thoughts. Overall, my fear and anxiety had run amok in my mind, and I felt so weak and powerless against the onslaught of anxious thoughts I was facing. I was desperate for the Lord to help me, and he did. My community group prayed for me during this time, and I sought out a biblical counselor. Psalm 43.3 says, Send out your light and your truth, let them lead me. And that's what the Lord did for me through biblical counseling. It really did feel like a light was being shined into my mind as we opened the Bible and really applied the truth of God's word to my life. My time in counseling was life-changing, but it was also really hard. I learned the necessity and power of God's word for my life, but I also realized how enslaved I had been to fear and bad habits of thinking. And it's hard to change something you are so used to doing. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, And take every thought captive to obey Christ. As these verses say, I was having to learn to set my mind on truth So this required the work of taking my anxious thoughts captive. 
and replacing them with thoughts that were focused not on myself, but on the Lord and his kingdom. It also meant I needed to cast my cares upon the Lord. During this season, I took many walks in my neighborhood, and I would just pray and give the Lord my cares and supplications over and over again. Or I would listen to Shane and Shane's psalms, just speaking the truth of these songs over my heart and mind. I was learning a lot of new ways of thinking and applying God's word to my thoughts, but I was also becoming more aware of my sin. The Lord graciously convicted me of not trusting him and trying to control my life rather than submit to him. I was made aware how focused I had been on myself rather than fixing my eyes on Christ as well as others around me too. As hard as it was to be confronted with the reality of my sin, it was a huge grace to me. I am forever grateful to my counselor and now friend who lovingly confronted my selfish ways of thinking and challenged me to trust in the Lord and believe in the promises of God. As mentioned previously, the fight to trust the Lord and turn from anxiety is no passive task. It requires us to be armed and ready to challenge anxious thinking with the truth of God's word. As you all know, this is hard when we have the enemies of our flesh, Satan, and the world. It feels sometimes easier to listen to ourselves or even the world around us rather than trust in the Lord. But we can take God at his word. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we have the formula, anxious for nothing, and telling the Lord everything with thankful hearts equals peace, guarding our hearts and minds. In closing, as I mentioned at the beginning, anxiety is not gone for me. Yes, I am a different person than I was four years ago by the grace of God, but the temptation is still strong to be anxious. I have recently felt particularly weak in the fight against anxiety and have certainly failed much this past year. But I am so excited to proclaim from one fellow struggler to another that the Lord is faithful at all times. Lamentations 3, 21 through 24 says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So this is our joy and hope in the fight against anxiety. We have the mercy of the Lord at all times. We can turn from our anxious thoughts and receive his grace over and over again. Let us not then tolerate anxious thoughts as a normal way of living, but fight against them with truth, knowing Jesus is with us. cried twice tonight, so you're going to have to bear with me. <laughs> but um, So my name is Rachel Wiley, and my husband and I, his name is Josh, we've been attending Cornerstone since 2011, and we have three kids. Um, Noah is almost 11, Heidi is nine, and Burks is um, six. And I'm expecting one, but really early. So <laughs> that's going to contribute to the tears. So that's kind of... Um, so 
when I first heard about the one-to-one -one mentorship program, it was in this room, very similar, on that Saturday morning, and, um, and I'm sure I was so excited, and I feel like I must have been the first person on the list. Um, we were going through a really challenging season in our life, and, um, and I was so desperate for help, and I knew that the Lord was taking us from one path to another, and I needed someone wiser than myself to just take me on that different path. And so um, I was paired with Sherry Kittrell, which was the best gift from God. And I still see the seeds that she laid that are coming to fruition now. And I was just recounting them over the last few weeks and um, when I was preparing and thinking about this. And so it was just such a gift. And um, I do want to say to anyone who might be kind of nervous, like I was definitely nervous to meet with Sherry, and we probably had a couple uncomfortable kind of like awkward meetings, but it was amazing. So if you have any fears, like just put them aside because God has a perfect person for you to meet with. So she poured into me month after month, and um, when I was doing the reading for today, she mentioned that Younger women need the voice of someone who teaches them what is truly good. And that's what I remember. Just every meeting. Um, every meeting I brought just so much stress of my life. And I was worried about, you know, my kids' school and making sure all of their school and what curriculum or whatever it might have been. And my husband's job. And we had a lot of challenges with extended family. And... Um, and then, of course, whatever behavior phase that your children are going through that you just think you're dying in. And what Sherry brought was the truth from God's word. And she spoke it into my life. And um, she would redirect my eyes from all of my stressors and my life to God's truth. And um, it was so encouraging. My husband could not wait for me to meet with Sherry every month because he was like, we need Sherry. Like, bring some more Sherry into our life because we need you to stop being you and get some more Sherry And because she brought the Lord, you know. So it was just this truth that she spoke. And I think um, it was a time in my life when the Lord was really teaching me to trust him. And so to be able to see the truth that she spoke into her life when she was my age, her children's life when they were the same age as my children, and then see the fruit of it all. Just, I could just, I was just clinging to it and just knowing that it was a gift from God for me to be able to experience and to see that from Sherry. And um, so I did. I left every meeting with so much hope and encouragement and just eager to see what God would do through the challenges that we were facing. And... Um, there's a thousand things I could say, but I think the other thing I really wanted to say that just meant so much was I could just listen to Sherry share her life all day, every day, and just recount God's faithfulness to her, and, um, I think we often can look around and think that everyone's just normal, and especially sometimes when you're going through challenges, and so it was so encouraging for her to open her life up to me and share just the struggles of early in her marriage or early in starting Cornerstone. Because I joined Cornerstone when Cornerstone looked like this. And my favorite story was when she talked about how amazed she is when she sees this building. You know, but to me, this is all I've ever known it as. And, um, or just things with her extended family and the redemption 
and the stories of um, God's faithfulness. And I am a planner by nature. (laughs) And so although that can be good, I think I can really struggle with wanting my own plans to work out or at least to draw hope from that. And that was the time that the Lord was really using me to trust him because he had ripped everything I'd ever known and all my plans away. And I was really left just to trust the Lord. And so her stories of his faithfulness throughout her life were just life-giving. And so when I think back, and I think back to a few weeks ago when we talked about being a life giver, like Sherry gave me life for, how long did we meet? Years? (laughs) I don't know, but she still gives me life. So Sherry was my life giver during that time and just spoke so much truth and really helped to build my trust in the Lord. And, um, And that's really what he was teaching me through that season. And just listening to her life and her opening up was just so encouraging. And so the verse I picked out was Psalm 3311. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. And I just wanted to end with that because for me, Sherry did take my eyes off my own plans and struggles and just taught me that the Lord's plans stand firm. And just as the truths were true for her when she was my age, they're still true now. And that was just so important. And then I just felt like through all generations, and I just so appreciate her passing from her generation to my generation, and really um, just investing in me and my family, and then my kids, you know, the next generation. So thank you, Sherry. Well, as you can see, meeting with Rachel was very easy <laughs> for me. So she was quite quite an easy gal to sit down and chat with. And um, I certainly didn't realize all that had been accomplished in my measly attempts to care for her. But uh, I do love you and care about you so much, Rachel. Um, well, we have much to be thankful for when we gather together. And... Um, for the purpose of strengthening one another in our fight for faith. Many of us here tonight are already benefiting from these types of mentoring relationships. Psalm 92 says that the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age, and they are full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Well, before meeting with Rachel, I was anxious that I wouldn't be able to be of any real help to her. (laughs) But the Lord reminded me that I was just there to serve her and to be a faithful, listening friend. He would supply the grace necessary to build a friendship. And I believe the Holy Spirit was in the midst of us for that very purpose. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Rachel made things easy. She usually had plenty of things to talk about. She was also transparent and humble. She was glad to let me know about things that were easier or more difficult for her. Serving as a mentor to young women is a gift to older women. 
it's a privilege and very, very humbling when a young woman invites you into her life and shares details. It also helps us to get our eyes off ourselves and reminds us of the challenges that younger women face in their season of life. We learn to draw from God's grace and we come with faith and compassion for the purpose of encouraging a younger friend. God graciously gives us this opportunity in the midst of the local church. Often, we can encourage a friend to persevere in trusting God for a given situation with a husband, a child, a roommate, family member, or a job situation. We can point them to Christ with scriptures like Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elected as God who justifies? Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is indeed interceding for us. Isn't that just so encouraging that he is interceding for us? What a promise. We can always remind one another with the gospel and his grace for us. We may not have the answer for their specific set of circumstances. And many times I did not have answers for Rachel. But we can provide a biblical perspective. We can help them see evidence of grace and how God is at work in their lives, but because he is most definitely at work. Wasn't he, Rachel? He was obviously at work so many times, but we just didn't see the full picture at the time. Another opportunity came my way after my daughter, Lauren, moved out of town. She said, hey, Mom, I know this girl at Cornerstone named Ashley who could really benefit from someone reaching out to her. And I tried to touch base with Ashley on Sunday mornings, and maybe, and I can't really remember, but I think I invited her to attend Legacy at my house. Ashley wore her hair in long dreads, and she liked to hit punching bags. And I share that to say that Ashley and I are very different. But because we are in Christ, the similarities that we have are endless. We're both sinners in need of God's gracious, saving grace. Over time, we became friends. And it's not an official one-to-one relationship. It simply began by me pursuing a friendship with her. Um, We would have lunch together. We'd have coffee. She'd come over and hang out at my house. And one evening, she invited me to her home uh, for a game night with friends and family. And that was a blast. (laughs) Over the past few years, I've had the privilege to watch as Ashley has grown in many ways. Ashley is a servant. She's probably served your kids, maybe even you, donuts on Sundays mornings when we were serving donuts. I've seen her walk through painful situations at her workplace and with family with faith and character, trusting God and experiencing grace in the midst of her pain. Again, Ashley has made caring for her really easy for me. God has been faithful to be with us and answer our prayers. As older women, we have limitations in what we can do for younger women, but by God's grace, we can learn to be a friend and to share their burdens. Carolyn Mahaney has been my mentor for decades through her many books and as a friend. She has helped me in many ways. 
and one of those being our decision last year to move from a home that we had lived in for 25 years. She patiently listened. She offered counsel, and she prayed for me. It was priceless. Last month, I had the privilege of sharing lunch with my friends, Carolyn Mahaney and Janie Ortland. Carolyn and Janie had never met, so it was fun for me to get to be with them as they got to know one another. Everything in me wanted to pull out my notebook and begin taking notes during this lunch, but I thought it would be a little awkward. <laughs> it was definitely a mentoring moment for me, and this is what I learned. These two ladies were humble and grateful to be together. They were vulnerable, and they were transparent with one another and talked about persevering in the fight of faith, both pointing out how God had been faithful and how, go how good and how much God's word had sustained them, especially during difficult seasons of life. It was a privilege to be in the midst of these mature, godly women. I share that because at Cornerstone, we're surrounded with godly, mature women, and I'm really grateful for every one of them. Um, now I was going to read this from just a little story as I close from this book, and I really highly recommend it. It's called Aging with Grace, and um, I think we talked about it on the podcast a little bit. Maybe, maybe Paulette mentioned it. That's what I remember. <laughs> that was fun, too. Um, this is a, I like history, so this is uh, a historical story. Um, shortly after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, some Eastern Bloc countries allowed missionaries in. An American pastor attended a church service in Ukraine and wrote the following in his church newsletter. How mistaken the communists were when they allowed the older women to continue worshiping together. It was they who were considered no threat to the new order, but it was they whose prayers and faithfulness over all those barren years held the church together and raised up a generation of men and young people to serve the Lord. Yes, the church we attended was crowded with those older women at the front, for they had been the stalwart defenders and maintainers of Christ's gospel. But behind them and alongside them and in the balcony and outside the windows were the fruit of their faithfulness. Men, women, young people, and children, we must never underestimate the place and power of our godly women. Now, on the lighter side, maybe on the lighter side, by contrast, another pastor wrote a series of articles on dangerous cliques in the Western church, such as the good old boys club and the charter member club. The one that caught my attention was the DOLC, the Domineering Old Ladies Club. These excerpts from his article on the DOLC are sobering. This clique is made up of older women who like to think of themselves as the matriarchs of the church. However, they lack real submissiveness toward those in leadership. If you notice, they get their way and will do what it takes to bring it about. Men tend to fear this group. The DOLC makes sure that the younger women are not involved in any aspect of women's ministries, or other ministries for that matter, when it might challenge the DOLC's control and power. Now, before you start naming names, this is the author, she wrote this, before you start naming the names of women you think match this description, 
Let me share my friend's humble example to this article. She shouted, busted. Lord, deliver me from being in the DOLC and from the club that criticizes them. Lord, have mercy. I just share that just so that we recognize as older and younger women, we both need God's mercy, and he's there to provide it.